episode 13 occupational hiv post exposure prophylaxis so what are the high risk contact and uh, for the high risk contact we have to give them the prophylaxis okay so the high risk contacts are exposure of the mucous membrane non intact skin and also the percutaneous exposure also exposure to blood semen vaginal secretions and any body fluid with visible blood okay and uh, uncertain risk factors includes the cerebrospinal fluid and pleural and the pericardial fluid synovial fluid peritoneal fluid or amniotic fluid these are the uncertain but although they are the high risk one okay now let's talk about the low risk ones in which we don't have to give the prophylaxis so there it includes the exposure to urine feces nasal secretions saliva sweat tears okay and with no visible blood in them so we they don't need the prophylaxis here Timing of the prophylaxis initiate urgently, preferably in the first few hours, continue for 28 days. Regimen includes more than 3 drug regimen is recommended. That means the 2 nucleotide and uh, nucleoside, uh, two nucleotide and nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors that is tenofovirin and mistraisetabine. Plus we can add integrase uh, inhibitors that is raltegravir or protease inhibitors or non-nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Okay, so 3 drug regimen is used for the prophylaxis also. So the risk of the HIV zero conversions following the occupational leadership exposures is low that is less than 0.5% and is seen primarily with the hollow bore example phlebotomy as opposed to the solid organ that is suture or needle use. Nevertheless, the HIV post-exposure prophylaxis is recommended following any, any exposure to the blood or potentially contaminated blood fluids from an HIV positive source patient via cutaneous exposures are or exposure to the mucous membrane or non-intact skin. If HIV status of the source patient is unknown, but the patient has risk factors for HIV, prophylactic therapy should be initiated while awaiting for the result of the HIV testing. Okay, the exposure health exposed healthcare workers should have HIV testing immediately to establish the baseline serologic status. Testing should be repeated at six weeks, three months, and six months. In addition to obtain the baseline serologic status, the post-exposure prophylaxis should be started urgently, preferably in the first few hours following the exposure. If possible, workers should be relieved of duties immediately to initiate the post-exposure prophylaxis. Operating room personnel should scrub out of the procedures. Okay, the standard post-exposure prophylaxis consists of the triple therapy as mentioned already. Tinovovir amitraisitavir with raltegravir is preferred with low side effects profile or few drug-drug interactions, okay. Post-exposure prophylaxis should be continued for 4 weeks, that is 28 days. Post-exposure prophylaxis must be initiated as soon as possible and should not await for the HIV results serology, okay. And if the exposed workers is baseline HIV positive, then establish the infections to decision to continue the post-exposure prophylaxis may be revisited at that time, okay. Now. Knowing the drug resistance of source strain may be helpful for the post-exposure drug prophylaxis drug selections. Okay, the post, however, the post-exposure prophylaxis is more effective when started as soon as possible. Should not be delayed for the resistant testing. So you have to start the post-exposure prophylaxis with three drugs. Okay, that's only the basic answer. So you have to draw the blood and then you have to start the th therapy uh, prophylaxis therapy with the three drug immediately. Okay, now. Okay, so infectious mononucleosis, we have listened uh, so many points about that, okay, that we have to avoid the contact sports and whenever a patient is exposed to the amoxicillin, can be a rash in case of infectious mononucleosis, okay. So the uh, post-antibiotic rash 
after the administration of MC, amphicillin or amoxicillin in infectious mononucleosis is seen 2 to 10 days after the antibiotic exposures and resolved within days of the drug discontinuation. The mechanism of the rash is not completely understood, but it may be a delay type of hypersensitivity due to the viral induced immune modification that is not considered true drug allergies. Most patients subsequently receive the same antibiotic without reactions. Okay. Now, acute rheumatic fever is a post-streptococcal uh, syndrome characterized by arthritis, carditis, and subcutaneous nodules and erythema marginatums and syndrome scorias. Erythema marginatum simply is uh, you have you see the clear margin of that. Okay, so you have to remember that this patient macular rash is not uh, associated with the acute rheumatic fever. Okay, and also in acute rheumatic fever there will be a murmur, but it's not there in this case. Erythema infectiosum is the facial rash, lap cheek, and we know that it is a type of a reticular rash on the entire play on the entire body. Okay, it can be a reticular rash on the entire body or a slap cheek rash. Okay, true drug allergy that is IgE mediated hypersensitivity type one hypersensitivity causes the injuryma and urticaria wheezing and vomiting and also hypotension. Symptoms typically develops within hours to aller allergen exposure. This patient developed rash. Due to her antibiotic course, the post-antibiotic rashes seen in infectious mononucleosis does not represent a true allergy. Kawasaki disease presents with fever, rash, cervical impedinopathy, and mucous membrane changes and also erythema, uh, sorry, extremity edemas and conjunctivitis. Okay, and generally the patient are less than 5 years old. So, yeah, we already know everything about Kawasaki disease too. And, uh, yeah. Steven Johnson syndrome is generalized rash typically triggered by certain medications such as sulfonamide and lamotrigines. And uh, unlike this patient macular rash, the rash associated with Steven Johnson syndrome will be red and macules and will have the bullas too. Okay, that would be like so damn severe. Okay, usually involves the mucous membranes and it is accompanied by the positive Nikolsky sign that is uh, skin slugging with gentle pressure only. Staphylococcus uh, scarlet syndrome present with uh, fever, pharyngitis, and also sandpaper like rash is there and uh, however the rash occurs in the first two days of the infections and improve with amoxicillin okay and hepatitis pneumogaly is uncommon in cephalococcal infections next is the uh, features of necrotizing fasciitis so necrotizing fasciitis is caused by four microorganisms first is the streptococcus pyogenes that is group a streptococcus cephalococcus aureus clostridium perfringens and polymicrobial infections okay so features of necrotizing fasciitis microbiological includes the streptococcus pyogenes group a streptococci cephalococcal aureus and uh, clostridium perfringens and polymicrobials pathogenesis includes the bacteria spreads rapidly through the subcutaneous tissue in and the fascia and undermining the skin the most commonly involved the extremities and the perineal region okay clinical feature clinical manifestations are often antecedent history of the minor trauma erythema of the overlining skin and swelling or swelling and edema and pain will be out of proportion to the examination finding and systemic finding will be fever and hypertension treatment requires surgical deprivation and broad spectrum antibiotics so basically microbe causing the uh, necrotizing fasciitis is streptococcus pyogenes that is group A streptococcus, staphylococcus aureus, clostridium perfringens, and polymicrobial infections. Bacteria spread rapidly through the cutaneous tissue, then it enters the uh, uh, deep fascias and undermining the skin, mostly involves the extremities and the perineal region. Clinical features include often anticipated history of the minor trauma or uh, erythema of the overlying skin, swelling and edema, pain out of proportion, the examination findings, and the systemic fevers and hypertension can be there. Treatment with surgical deprivation and uh, uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. So, yeah. This patient was having the fever, hypertension, erythema and swelling. Notably, she has pain out of proportion to the physical examinations. And in the CT scan, there is air in the deep tissue. Okay. And this air in the deep tissue represent the 
yeah necrotizing fasciitis this consideration of the symptoms are findings are concerned with the necrotizing fasciitis where you rapidly spreading infections of the subcutaneous fascia generally involving following the trauma also resulting in a significant peripheral vascular disease example diabetes diabetes it can also result from the significant peripheral vascular disease Bruguer septococca is most frequently recovered pathogens although the necrotizing fasciitis is usually polymicrobial the gas produced by the microbes enter the soft tissue which is result in the crepitus on examinations patients with necrotizing fasciitis have pain and swelling of an affected site the pain is uh, frequently more severe than the expected based on the degree of the swelling and the erythema usually preceding sym systemic symptoms such as the fever and hypertension would be there and untreated uh, necrotizing fasciitis can result to rapid discoloration of the affected site pulmonary discharge will be there bullous and necrosis will also be there and imaging can reveal the extent of the infections and airway in the tissue bed however the necrotizing fasciitis strongly suspected and therapy should not be delayed to pursue the additional imaging short spectrum antibiotics therapy started resection of the necrotic tissue are necessary for the treatment because of its rapid progression necrotizing fasciitis causes a significant morbidity and mortality even after aggressive treatment okay now the skin and the soft tissue infection that uh, are successfully limited by immune systems and tissue barrier present present as abscess okay so if there is a Uh, tissue barrier and everything is there and it is localized so abscess are localized to tender and fluctuating areas and do not spread aggressively as the necrotizing fasciitis okay and systemic signs would not be there in case of abscess cellulitis is the acute acute skin infections that present with warm erythema edema and tenderness and uh, evidence of the underlying tissue necrosis would be there including the severe pain crepitus or the systemic signs such as hypotension will be there and uh, systemic should more suggestive of the aggressive uh, necrotizing fasciitis other than the deep tissue infections okay so yeah in cellulitis you see warm erythema and edema and tenderness okay and uh, deep muscles hematoma can occurs with moderate to severe trauma deep hematomas that arises with minor traumas are not completely seen or not completely seen except in patients with the bleeding disorders so hematomas uh, may be tender to palpate and signs of infection such as edema edema and hypertension will not be there pyomyositis that is muscle abscess may either uh, may have a very similar clinical presentation compared to the necrotizing fasciitis with fever erythema swelling and pain however pyomyositis is generally limited to one muscle group that does not spread rapidly this patient also has air in the tissues and ct scan which is more consistent with the necrotizing fasciitis okay now the thrombophlebitis uh, uh, characterized by erythema edema and the swelling of the distal extremities along with the palpable cord like uh, vein and uh, findings of the tissue necrosis uh, shock are inconsistent with thromboplevitis toxic shock syndrome we see diffuse erythematous rash and hypotension followed by multi organ dysfunctions and it was not there okay next thing is the uh, discharge so glamidia uh, chlamydia and the gonorrhea in the women so risk factors will be aged less than 25 years high risk uh, of sexual behavior is there in less than 25 years manifestations include asymptomatic mainly most commonly cervicalitis urethritis and also perihepatitis like fitzhugh curtis syndrome can be there cervicalitis urethritis perihepatitis that is the fitzhugh curtis syndrome any symptomatic cases diagnosis is made with the help of nucleic acid amplification testing treatment includes empiric treatment azithromycin and ceftriaxone confirmed chlamydia by azithromycin and confirmed gonorrhea by azithromycin and ceftriaxone So empiric is the azithromycin ceftriaxone. If you have the confirmed chlamydia, then only give the azithromycin. But if you have the confirmed gonorrhea, then you have to give the azithromycin along with the ceftriaxone. Complications can be pelvic inflammatory disease, ectopic pregnancies, or infertility. So this patient has a classic uh, features of presentations of the acute cervicalitis and mucopurulent discharge will be there. 
ओके द कोबरेंट डिस्चार्ज विल बी देयर एंड ऑल्सो फ्राइबल सर्विक्स विल बी देयर थ्रू द न्यूक्लिक एसिड एम्पलीफिकेशन टेस्टिंग इज रिक्वायर्ड ऑल्दो दैट इज रिक्वायर्ड एज अ पॉजिटिव रिजल्ट कन्फर्मेशन ऑफ द इन्फेक्शन ट्रीटमेंट इज एम्पेरिकली स्टार्टेड एंड द एम्पेरिक ट्रीटमेंट फॉर द सिम्टोमेटिक रिलीफ एंड ऑल्सो डिक्रीज द चांसेस ऑफ ट्रांसमिशन टू द पार्टनर एंड डिले इन द ट्रीटमेंट विल इंक्रीज द रिस्क ऑफ द एडसेंडिंग इन्फेक्शन एंड कैन लीड टू इन्फ्लेमेटरी डिसीज एंड लॉन्ग टर्म सिक्वली कैन भी एक्टोपिक प्रेगनेंसी एंड इनफर्टिलिटी द फर्स्ट लाइन एपेरिक ट्रीटमेंट फॉर द एक्यूट सर्विस एक्टिस ड्यूबल थेरेपी विद दिन प्लस सेप्ट्राइजोन विच कवर्स दी अगेंस्ट दी टू मोस्ट कॉमन ऑर्गेनिजम्स दी क्लामाइडी एंड दिस एरिया बोनोरी एजोथ्रोमाइजिन मोनोथेरेपी इज द ट्रीटमेंट ऑफ चॉइस फॉर द नाइट नॉट प्रू ऑन फॉर दी क्लामाइडी सर्विसाइटिस and was previously effective for the treatment of gonococcal cervicitis too but now it's not okay and ceftriaxone monotherapy was another treatment for not proven for gonococcal cervicitis however due to increasing antimicrobial resistance dual therapy is needed okay ceftriaxone plus doxycycline is a broad spectrum antibiotic which provides a polymicrobial coverage for the pelvic inflammatory disease okay and which present with the cervical motion tenderness so if you see a cervical motion tenderness and uh, which is known as the chandelier sign so if you see a chandelier sign there is cervical motion tenderness is there that means the pelvic inflammatory disease is already occurred okay or uterine or adnexial mass is there then you have to give them cefotaxim plus doxycycline okay metronidazole because they are covering the broad spectrum thing metronidazole is used for the treatment of the bacterial vaginosis okay where you uh, see watery discharge and trichomonas thing and all that greenish frothy discharge would be there so you, over there you use the metronidazole okay so yeah this is it for this moving on to the next question that is the hiv management during the pregnancy so how you gonna manage the hiv in the pregnancy so antipartum in antipartum hiv rna viral load at the initial visit is tested every 2 to 4 weeks after initiations or change of the therapy and monthly until undetectable then every 3 months okay cd4 cell count every 3 to 6 months will be there and resistance testing if uh, not previously performed art initiation as soon as possible and avoid amnesentesis unless the viral load is less than equal to 1000 copies per ml so basically hiv management during pregnancy uh, depends on the time or the duration like is it antepartum or is it intrapartum or we are treating it postpartum so if antepartum is there then hiv rna viral load at initial visit is measured okay and then every 2 to 4 weeks after the initiation or change of the therapy monthly until undetectable then every 3 months so hiv viral load is done at initial then every 2 to 3 weeks and after the initiation of the therapy or the change in therapy then monthly until it is undetectable and then every 3 months okay so now CD4 cell count every three to six months. CD4 cell count is done for every every three to six months. Resistant testing if not previously performed, then we have to do resistant testing also. And antiretroviral therapy initiation as early as possible and avoid the amnesentesis unless the viral load is less than equal to one thousand copies per ml. Okay. Now, intrapartum avoid the artificial rom therapy that is the uh, rupture of membrane so avoid artificial rupture of membrane and fetal scalp electrode or operative vagina delivery so avoid that operative vagina delivery of fetal scalp electrode or artificial rupture of membrane okay viral load if less than equal to 1000 copies per ml then you have to give them art plus vaginal delivery and if viral load is more than 1000 ml per uh, copies per ml then you have to give them uh, arts plus zero burin and then you have to go for c section delivery okay postpartum in postpartum if a mother is there then you have to simply continue the arts and if infant for infant 
the maternal viral load you have to check for the maternal viral load if maternal viral load were less than 1000 copies per ml then only give zerovudin and if it's more than 1000 copies per ml then you have to give multi-drug ARTs okay now the current guidelines recommend that all the pregnant women with HIV begins taking the combination of antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible regardless of the HIV viral load or the CD4 count to minimize the maternal risk of the HIV infections and reduce the prenatal transmission okay drug resistant testing is performed prior to the treatment initiation however the ART is begin immediately and modified according to the result combination of the drug throughout the pregnancy is more effective than a single drug single drug therapy and should uh, include the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and either proteins inhibitors or integrase inhibitors early initiation of the multi-drug ART allows for optimal viral load reductions by time of by uh, by time of delivery because the viral load detects the mode of the delivery if viral load is less than 1000 then we can under the pair the we can do the vaginal or delivery or without intrapartum zidobudin but if viral load is more than 1000 then you have to give them intrapartum zidobudin and do the c-section okay infant receive post-exposure prophylaxis after delivery to further reduce the risk of the viral infections therapy and dosing vary uh, based on the maternal viral load and specific infant risk factors mother with uh, HIV who lives in areas where formula is uh, readily available example the United States should not breastfeed because HIV can transmit can be transmitted to breast milk however the mothers with HIV living in developing countries should not continue ART should continue ART and also the breastfeeding for the six months to minimize the infant morbidity or mortality for other infectious diseases okay using single drug therapy at, at delivery only delaying the combination of ART until the third trimester may not be adequately reducing the viral load at the time of the delivery therefore that's not required and uh, it will also increase the risk of uh, vertical transmission so monodrug therapy is not required okay so what you have to take uh, from this uh, question is pregnant women with HIV should start the combination of the antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible independent of the HIV RNA viral load or the CD4 count early initiation of ART in addition to the intrapartum zidobudin administration cesarean delivery and the post, ex post exposure ART prophylaxis for the infant can decrease the risk of the neonatal HIV infections and women who achieve the optimal viral load reduction that is one less than 1000 copies may deliver vaginally without is it over okay now let's talk about the next thing which is the okay so the in the next question what we have to study is the same thing the time course of the post-operative fever okay so yeah basically again i'm gonna say this because i have already explained this to you guys in any of some previous lectures but yeah let's do this again so time course of the post-exposed operative fever so from 0 to 6 hours it can be because of tissue trauma it can be because of blood product or it can be because of malignant hypothermia due to anesthesia use okay from 6 hours to 24 hours there are no risk and from 24 hours to one week there can be nosocomial infections or it can be due to group a streptococcus infections or the clostridium perfusions infections it can also be non-infectious for example myocardial infarction pulmonary edema and dvt after one week to less than one month it can be because of the other organisms not the group a streptococcus or clostridium perfusions, surgical site infections and the clostridium difficile infection can also be there earlier it was the the clostridium perfusions infections but now it's clostridium difficile infections and also drug fever can be there and pulmonary edema and dvt can also be there 
and after one month viral infections and the third one is due to the indolent organisms the surgical site infections can be because of the indolent organisms so the zero to six starts is called immediate after 24 to one week is called acute one week to one month is called subacute and more than one month is called delayed so post-operative fever defined by temperature more than equal to 100.4 degree fahrenheit is common major surgical uh, common following a major surgery and is generally mediated by release of the pyretic cytokines such as interleukin 1, interleukin 6, ENF alpha and interferon gamma in response to the tissue trauma, blood cell lysis and the bacterial exotoxins and deendotoxins. The underlying etiology can often be differentiated based on how much time elapsed since surgery is there. Okay. Immediate post-operative fevers occurs within hours to operations. Most cases are caused by tissue damage and uh, incurred during uh, major procedures such as the open cholecystic tommy fever and leukocytosis generally last for less than three days and are managed symptomatically example with acetaminophen and observation other causes of immediate fever include the blood transfusion and drug reactions these are often associated with hypotension due to vasodilation and rashes acute that is one to seven days post-operative and subacute that is seven to 28 days post-operative fever is usually caused by bacterial infections fever is delayed with the infections because of several days of the bacterial replications are generally necessary to produce enough of the endotoxins and exotoxins to generate fever most acute post-operative fever are caused by nosocomial infections such as in urinary tract infections and pneumonia whereas subacute post-operative fevers are often due to abscess or infections of the central line or surgical site okay so yeah the post-operative atelectasis is generally not considered as an independent cause of the fever but can predispose to the patient to develop the pneumonia atelectasis is usually managed and prevented with insensitive uh, in sorry uh, oh my god i have such a bad slip of tongue it's fine it's absolutely fine i hope you guys will ignore this thing <laughs> i won't repeat that again okay so atelectasis is usually managed and prevented with intensive spirometry not positive airway pressure or chest physiotherapy so you have to remember that okay now malignant hypothermia is the rare cause of immediate post-operative fever and it is triggered by the exposure of the volatile anesthesia and succinyl choline and choline and generally present intraoperative with muscle rigidity hypercarbia tachypnea tachycardia urgent treatment with drantoline a skeletal muscle relaxant and cooling measures is required to prevent the death okay yeah so the basic take-home point from this question was post-operative fever is generally medication medi medi wait post-operative fever is generally mediated by cytokine release in response to the tissue trauma blood lysis and infections immediate post-surgical fever or post-operative fevers occurs within hours of the, inf of the operations and is usually due to tissue trauma mismatch blood products and drug reactions acute that is one to seven days of the post-operative or subacute that is seven to 28 days of the post-operative fever is generally driven by the infections okay so yeah you the answer for the question was symptomatic treatment only and close observation okay remember that now let's move further let's talk about something about the coccidoides coccidoides is an endemic mold of the desert southwest whose spores are easily aerosolized in the dry month after a rainy season inhalations of an single anthroconidium is sufficient to cause the infection usually 7 to 14 days after the inoculation symptoms may be subclinical but many patients more than 50 percent develops community acquired pneumonia which includes fever chest pain productive cough lower infiltrations 
often accompanied by arthralgia, erythema nodosum, and erythema multiforme. This clinical syndrome is also co called valley fever and sometimes frequently lasts weeks or months. Okay, diagnosis should be suspected in any patient living in or traveling to an endemic region, particularly Arizona or California, who has a lower respiratory illness lasting more than one week. Confirmation primarily lies on serologic testing, but culture are often sent. Most patients who are otherwise healthy and have mild illness or moderate disease do not need antifungal treatment and can have regular follow-up to ensure resolution. However, the patient with severe disease or certain risk factors such as HIV, immunosuppressive medications or diabetic mellitus are much more likely to develop the disseminated disease to bone, central nervous system and skin. These patients required antifungal treatment with ketoconazole and fluconazole. Alright, so this is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like my content, then do let me know because your words motivates me and inspires me to make more content. So thank you for listening. And I hope uh, you will do great in whatever you are going to do in the upcoming exams or whatever. So let's just hope for the best. Thank you so much. Bye.